My name is Sam White. I am the CEO and founder of Stellar Insurance in both Australia and the UK. And my leadership lesson would be always pursue your joy. It's incredibly important to find joy in everything that you do in life. You spend an awful lot of time at work and you should never discount that for yourself or for the people that you employ. Hello and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. I'm Kate McGee, the editor of Management Today. And I'm Ailish Cronin, staff writer at Management Today. On today's podcast, we've interviewed Seller Insurance's chief exec, Sam White. Ailish, you spoke to her. Tell us about the interview. So yes, Sam White is a businesswoman with more than 20 years experience. She's also the founder and chief exec of pro-woman insurance company, Stellar Insurance. Throughout her career, she's employed more than 200 people and turned over in excess of £18 million. But her latest venture has been going sober, which is a decision born from watching her mother battle with alcoholism and a desire to not only be a healthier person, but also a better leader. Great. Well, that sounds like a really interesting listen. So before we get to that, we're going to discuss the latest leadership news. First up, we had two high-profile leader resignations. First was in the political space, the resignation of the SNP leader, Nicola Sturgeon, after more than eight years in the role. She's planning to stay in position until her successor is decided. Now, the news was greeted excitedly by the Labour Party. Anis Sarwar, the Scottish Labour leader, said there was now a generational opportunity for his party. Over in the tech world, longtime Google executive and YouTube chief exec Susan Wojcicki is stepping down from her role. Now, she's been at the helm of the world's largest video sharing site for nine years, a Google employee for more than 25, and she's credited with steering Google's decision and strategy to acquire YouTube for $1.65 billion in 2006. And she has built YouTube's ad business into the huge business it is today. She also announced her departure by publishing a letter to employees on YouTube's official blog, where she said, I've decided to step back from my role as the head of YouTube and start a new chapter focused on my family, health and personal projects I'm passionate about. Now, I think what's quite interesting here is that Sheryl Sandberg of Lean In fame has stepped down. You've got Nicola Sturgeon stepping down. Jacinda Ardern stepped down last week, citing burnout and saying she hadn't got enough left in the tank. And in Nicola Sturgeon's case, she said she'd been struggling with conflicting emotions since the turn of the year. And she said, I get up in the morning and I tell myself and usually convince myself that I've got what it takes to keep going and keep going and keep going, she said. But then I realized that that's maybe not as true. She talks about the toughness of leading the country through the COVID pandemic and that she's only recently started to comprehend the sort of the physical and the mental impact of it and the sort of brutality of politics. And I think it's quite interesting that all these statements are opening up a conversation about the impact that leadership takes on people, you know, and whether it's worth it, when to know the right time to stop is. And I, I think it's quite interesting to kind of to watch that play out. Ailish, what has been on your radar this week? So there's been a lot of chatter recently about the rise of AI, specifically a program called ChatGPT, which has been created by OpenAI. ChatGPT is a chatbot that can, when given a prompt, generate a human-like piece of written text. Often when we think about bots and robots and AI replacing humans, our mind often goes to manufacturing and you have an image of robotic arms putting things 
onto conveyor belts, putting things in boxes, packing things away and replacing the human element of a manufacturing plant. But with this introduction of ChatGPT and bots like this, there are concerns that this technology could jeopardize anyone whose job requires them to record and interpret information, much like journalists. Um, (laughs) But this technology is still fairly green in its development. So we'll just have to watch this space. I have taken the time to use ChatGPT. Basically, I went in and asked it a very simple question and I asked it to explain seed capital in simple terms. And this is what the chatbot typed back to me. Seed capital is the initial funding that a new business or startup receives to help it get off the ground. It is typically a small amount of money that comes from a variety of sources, such as the entrepreneur's personal savings, friends and family or angel investors. Seed capital is usually used to cover the initial costs of starting a business, such as developing a prototype, conducting market research, or hiring employees. In return for providing seed capital, investors often receive a share of ownership in the company or the potential for a return on their investment if the business is successful. Now, while that's factually accurate and provides a sort of Wikipedia-esque type response, What it can't do, I suppose, is add that human aspect. It can't add in the element of discussion and the analytics. It can provide factual information. Mm. As of yet, it's not able to provide that human element of discussion and debate. So again, this is a watch this space moment. Perhaps our jobs are safe for now, but we shall see. Great. So I'll make sure I, when I'm reading your stories next that uh, <laughs> they haven't been written by a bot instead. And I think it's quite interesting as well because Google obviously then was forced to kind of show its product that it had been working on for a while. And unfortunately, it got it questioned wrong. And then obviously the share price fell in response to that. And I think I read a story recently last weekend about the chatbots telling somebody to leave his wife and yes. starting to try and flirt with people. So yes. I think this, a- this this was a chatbot created by Microsoft. They launched their own AI empowered chatbot based on the same technology as ChatGPT. And it was a, a guy at the New York Times who had a conversation with Microsoft's ChatGPT type technology. It was meant to be a very conversational interaction but the chatbot within the space of about two hours told the reporter quote actually you're not happily married your spouse and you don't love each other you just had a boring valentine's day dinner together end quote (laughs) excellent it's called bing chat and bing chat insisted that mr roos from new york times was not in fact happily married because he was in love with the chatbot itself (laughs) so there's another avenue Ah. That uh, AI technology can go down. Excellent. So definitely agree. It's in its early stages at the moment. What was that film where the guy fell in love with a robot? Her. Her. It was a voiceover. It was like a Siri type technology. Ah. And I believe it was Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. So he fell in love with Scarlett Johansson's voice. (laughs) So this is now becoming a reality. Yes. Her (laughs) in real life. (laughs) Okay, we'll definitely want to keep our eyes on anyway. While we're talking about tech, just going back to YouTube as well, the, the successor will be Neil Mohan, who was previously chief product officer. 
And I think what's quite interesting about him is that he's bullish on Web3 and NFTs and the metaverse, which have gone noticeably quiet this year since the crypto crash and the implosion of FTX, the crypto exchange, which is definitely a story I'm watching with a lot of interest. So it'll be interesting to see what impact his interest in these spaces is going to have on YouTube and, and its potential future direction. While we're on tech, I'm also interested that Meta is going to start charging customers for verified accounts. And obviously our listeners will be aware that Elon Musk introduced this at Twitter at the end of last year and received huge criticism for it. And it's, so it's interesting that now others are following suit and seeing it as a way to make um, more money. And just to explain what it is, it's a sort of a new subscription service that will let Facebook and Instagram users pay for a verified account. Testing's beginning in New Zealand and Australia this week, and it's going to roll out to other countries soon. Previously, they gave out blue badges to notable public figures and businesses for free, whereas now they'll be trying to monetize that. What else has been on your agenda this week? Well, the oil and gas giant Shell has reported its highest profits in 115 years. It reported £32 billion profit for 2022, which was double that of the previous year. And it's ended up being one of the largest profits in corporate history. And there's been a lot of anger over this historic profit. We ran a story about whether this anger surrounding um, these profits was justified. Is there an argument to be made that this outrage is performative rather than from a sense of deep-seated injustice? I spoke with geopolitical analyst Irina Tuskerman. In her opinion, the core of this outrage lies in optics and PR and what she considers an incorrect perception of the role of industry rather than it being rooted in reality. She believes that trade unions, who were very vocal critics of Shell, that their views are based on a, quote, outdated socialist-influenced paradigm, unquote, which wow. basically places the equality or lack of equality between lower-ranking employees and private industries above improvements in the standard of living, work conditions and opportunities for growth. So what she's basically saying is that trade unions seem to care more or are more vocal about the perceived lack of equality between employee and private industries. They seem to care more about that than actually making strides in improving the standard of living and working conditions and opportunities for job growth. Mm, that's an interesting point. I mean, I think it's more simple than that. Is it not surely just that people are really struggling with these bills mm. that they've been told they have to pay because the raw materials have gone up and it's, you know, everyone's just got to pay it. There's no way out to then find that the company that is selling you that product is actually making unbelievable amounts of profit off mm. the back of that. It is hard to swallow. I spoke to Ben Gallagher, who's the chief executive of a consultancy called BA, and he reiterated that we shouldn't forget that the primary goal of most businesses is to make a profit and maximize shareholder value. He understands the outrage at the actions of a business like Shell that sells what he says dangerous products that contribute to the climate crisis, especially during such an uncertain economical period. But he did say that it is pointless to argue simply that Shell's shareholders, quote, don't need the money. 
we all know everybody with lots of money always wants more, end quote. <laughs> well, I, I just think it's more basic. I just, I'm interested in the mechanics of how they actually made that profit and then what they're choosing to do with it. Can they give it as a rebate to customers? Can they pour a lot of that into sustainable technology so that they can improve the future, you know, be, be more green in the future? It doesn't look like great optics to be... Mm making huge amounts of money and it just seems like a bit of a sort of reputational fail not to have considered the strength of anger and this this is the same with Centrica and British Gas obviously that also came out with these huge profits it just feels like a very poor decision personally well Stuart Murphy who's the founder of renewable power plant TP Gen 24 he said that we're battling the competing aims of energy security and lower emissions, but we can't find the money to achieve either of those things. He does say energy companies such as Shell need to be held accountable for their contribution to the climate crisis and the government also needs to be tougher on these companies. But he does believe that demanding higher windfall taxes isn't the only solution. He says, quote, we need to create a friendlier funding environment for renewables where investment is rewarded and prioritised, getting the big players and their shareholders on board. This means making our green energy sector more commercially attractive and can be achieved through greater diversification, focusing more attention on underexplored innovations like tidal range energy, hydrogen capture and anaerobic digestion, end quote. Interesting. I mean, I do think we do need these companies to be focused strongly on the green agenda. Well, clearly, whoever is running the comms department at these energy companies really needs to be thinking about how that message is getting across. Because if they are, and I know that some of them have been helping customers and they have been giving people money back, etc. But that message just isn't getting across currently. Yeah, it's it's a tricky one, isn't it? All about the optics. All about the optics, exactly. And obviously business needs to make money and that's what it's set up to do. But I think you have to think about it in context of what's happening to your customers and the kind of society in which you operate and actually think about how you're contributing to that. And be upfront about it. People Mm. want to know what you're doing to support customers, especially in such an economically challenging time. It's all very well and good doing it in private, but people want you to to shout about it they want you to be upfront about it they're almost demanding that now so yeah the optics needs to focus on that mm-hmm. Today I'm speaking with Sam White the founder and chief executive of Stella Insurance Hi Sam please reintroduce yourself Oh hi um, well that was perfect yes I am the founder and CEO of Stella Insurance which is at the moment, a motor insurance brand in the UK and a motor and pet insurance brand in Australia, but we're hoping to be much, much more over the next few years. Brilliant. So I first wanted to talk about your journey to become sober and get a sense of the decisions that you had to take, what events led to that decision. Sure. I mean, it's been a long journey and I've had I've had fun with alcohol over the years. I've, you know, had not so much fun and bad hangovers and all the things that everybody that drinks goes through, or maybe not everybody. Some people just have one glass of wine and go home, but that certainly wasn't my experience with alcohol. I guess for me, if I look at the relationship with alcohol, it started from a very young age. My mum was a dysfunctional alcoholic and she 
unfortunately overdosed when I was 23. And I think you would expect under that set of circumstance that I just wouldn't drink at all at any point. You know, the sensible thing to do would probably be to avoid it. But I think like most people of my generation, you grow up in a household where you see a lot of drinking. Mine was sort of child of the 80s. There was lots of smoking, lots of drinking, lots of house parties. And my perception as a child was that's what grown up people do. You know, they have their friends over and they drink alcohol and that's how they have fun and a good time. And that, you know, meant that I was sneaking alcohol at sort of nine or ten years old. And I'm never going to let my daughter listen to this podcast because she's nine. And the idea of her sneaking alcohol is just horrific to me. But, I'd, you know, I'd sneak alcohol and it seemed like fun and it seemed like the grown up thing to do. And I did the usual teenage years of drinking and going out and partying with my friends and that kind of cascaded into my 20s. But I started having panic attacks when I was 19, like quite extreme panic attacks and anxiety. And I didn't really make the association at the time, which I'm now well aware of, but that alcohol really exasperates anxiety. And so it, was, it certainly wasn't helping with that. Made a, quite a few lifestyle changes. I came out as gay at 30. I stopped smoking. I took up exercise. And all of these things really helped. And eventually I stopped having panic attacks in my probably th- early 30s, 30, 31. But I still drank socially and still drank to excess socially, you know, if I was drinking at the weekends or having a night out with friends and it never felt good. But, you know, it's our society. That's what we do. And I think I mentally started to question that relationship and question whether that relationship was working for me or not. It took a long time to come to the conclusion that I just didn't want to do it at all because I think in our society we have this view that if you don't hit rock bottom, you don't have some kind of moment where your entire life falls apart, then under no circumstance should you stop drinking because it's the socially acceptable thing to do. So whilst I knew it was having a negative impact, it wasn't helping me with my clarity or my mental focus or my health or my fitness or any of those things, I still didn't feel that it was permissible for me to stop entirely. So how long have you been sober now? So I did one year no beer in 2019. I did it for a year and a half. And then I started drinking again socially during lockdown, mostly because everybody that was in my bubble drank. And I think I was just a bit bored and a bit frustrated and a bit kind of caught up with the the group that I was in at the time and I just thought might as might as well start again but I stopped in October last year and I think for me the difference is mentally I've made a decision myself in very much the same way that I did when I gave up smoking when I was 30 it's a final decision it's not a when I did one year no beer it was okay, I'm going to see if I can give up drinking for a year, which I did. When that year had passed, despite the fact that I was enjoying not drinking, there was still a bit in the back of my brain that was saying, well, you can start drinking at any point. There there wasn't some crystallised moment that meant that there was no way back. 
And as such, I'd left that door open in my own mind that it was an acceptable thing to, to, to go back to. And what was the reaction from people in your life, people that you were close to and people within in your working life as well? What was their reaction when you made that decision? It's really interesting. I think it's a lot easier now than it used to be, for sure. You know, I first started having sort of breaks from alcohol 10, 15 years ago, and I would always get so much hassle from friends. You know, we go out for dinner and I'd be like, I'm having a three month break and it, oh, you can have one. Why don't you want a glass of wine? That sort of thing. What I found this time is there's a real kind of split with people. There's, there's people more often than not that are really curious. Like I describe myself as a, slightly tongue-in-cheek under the circumstance but I describe myself as dry curious for a bit you know <laughs> and what I find is when I because I'm very open about it with people when I say that I'm not drinking anymore I people actually now tend to sort of ask me more questions about it in a positive way I think there are a number of people that are questioning their relationship with alcohol and whether it works for them but there's this weird thing in our culture that there's a shame around not drinking and it's because we have this very linear viewpoint that you're either an alcoholic or you're a healthy drinker and there isn't anything in between those two juxtapositions so in saying that you no longer drink you must be saying that you were an alcoholic before which definitely wasn't true for me I've never been alcohol dependent I've always been conscious of my relationship with alcohol because of my my mum's situation now that's not to say that I wasn't so arrogant as to assume that I never could have a problem with alcohol because I think anybody can have a problem with alcohol it was just that I was conscious that I was able to kind of dip in and, and dip out what are some of the health benefits that you've seen or that you've noticed now that you are sober yeah, so I mean, I've got a lot of sort of my own evidence from the long break that I had last time. So I was almost excited to get back to it, which sounds really terrible. And I'm sure I will be teased about that mercilessly. But there is just so many. Your sleep massively improves. People think that alcohol helps them sleep, but what it actually does is kind of send you off to sleep. So you'll get to sleep quicker when you've had a drink, but then invariably you'll wake up in the middle of the night because it disrupts all sorts of stuff in your brain and your body. I personally have always been had to give up drinking if I wanted to lose weight. I cannot lose weight and drink at the same time. The two things just don't work. And I think there's a combination of the calories in alcohol, the amount that it kind of disrupts your body's sort of natural go-to it'll always try and burn alcohol first rather than fat so losing weight's a lot easier if you're not drinking but I think the main thing for me is how much better you feel from a mood perspective now even if you're just having a Saturday night out or a Friday night out and people will say you know I'm going out I'm letting off steam I would find that it would take me a good two or three days to get back to an equilibrium. And I'm, I'm not sure that I got to the, the total equilibrium even on that basis. I think now, sort of three months in, 
if you were to give a score and say, you know, day after a big night out, maybe your happiness ratio, your calmness, everything else is at a four. And by the time you've got to Wednesday, you're at a seven. I just find I'm at an eight and eight and a half all of the time, regardless. So I think the overall sort of benefit to your mood and your well-being is huge. Have you noticed any improvements in your performance in your business as a CEO and as a leader? Are you able to make better decisions at work? How has it affected your ability to be a leader? Yeah, absolutely. I think the other interesting thing for me is I would say no to certain work events or social events because I knew that alcohol would be involved in it and I didn't want to have a drink. So say there's a networking event on a Wednesday. I would look at that in the past and think, I don't really want to go. I'm going to have, you know, a few glasses of wine. I'm going to feel crap on the Thursday and, you know, I've got stuff to do. I'll go now because it makes absolutely no difference to me. I'm, you know, I'm not drinking, so it's not going to affect my mood. So I can do more things, but also because I'm overall calmer, I will take risks or do things that would scare me more. Like I've just agreed to do a keynote speech in Sydney and I'm, I do things like this, I'll do podcasts, I'll do panels and so forth. But, but that kind of public speaking where you, you stood by yourself and having to talk to an audience has been something that I've been uncomfortable with in the past. And I think not having any residual anxiety from any drinking helps me have the confidence to do more things. Have you ever been in a situation where you have been at a work event where drinking is present? Say if you're meeting a very important client and it's something that you feel that you can't turn down, even though you know it's going to be an environment where alcohol is present. How have you managed to navigate those situations? And have you ever had any sort of comments or any negative comments as a result of you not drinking? So I think this is actually quite similar. I mean, I made the joke about being dry curious. This is similar to me about when I came out from a sexuality viewpoint, which might sound like a strange thing to put together, but I think a lot depends on how confident you are in your choices. So when I when I was younger and I was having a, a no drinking spell and I went to a work event and other people were drinking, I would often bow to that social pressure and think, I want this person to like me. I don't want them to think there's anything wrong with me or that I'm boring or that I'm, you know, that I'm judging them or any of those things. And so in order to facilitate the relationship, I'd have a drink. Now I look at it completely differently. My choices don't have to be your choices. Like, there is no, genuinely no judgment from me on however people want to live their lives. I know what works for me. I'm happy to talk about that. It might not work for you. There might be other things that you do that don't work work for me, you know. And what I find now is I kind of go in with a level of confidence. I have no desire to have a drink. I know I can have fun and enjoy myself and have conversations and, and meet people without having alcohol so by me going in with a confidence of I don't do that I find that I get a lot less pushback now whether attitudes have changed over the years and I think there's an element of that for sure 
But I also think my lack of conviction in what I was doing when I was younger would mean that people would feel more comfortable to push that boundary with me. It's like any boundary that that you have. And that was the same. I was embarrassed when I first came out. I thought people would judge me or they'd make certain assumptions about me. And so it wouldn't be something that I would be relaxed about being open with. Whereas now it's no big deal. If it comes up in conversation, if we're talking about partners, I'll talk about my wife because that's part of my life and it, you know, it doesn't mean anything. Have you ever had any other sort of colleagues or employees come to you who have heard your story and say that they are going on their own journey to being sober or maybe they're becoming dry curious, as you say? Have you ever experienced anything like that? Loads, absolutely loads. This time's been... And probably I'm talking a bit more about it openly, but my best mate, my buddy, Luke, who is a very, like, I would say if he had a scale of being hundreds an alcoholic and zero sober, and I was at 50, he was probably at 30. Like, he's he's not a big drinker, but he is into his fitness and his health. We go hiking at the weekends, and I've read all of these books on, you know, impact of alcohol, what it does with your brain, and we'd be chatting about it. and he's given up as well because he was like dry curious saw me talking about it and trying it he's done it himself and he's absolutely raving about it but I find even you know I've been at school kids parties and somebody's gone to pass me a drink which sounds like a strange thing at a a children's party but hey and I've said oh no, no no I don't and they've asked me about it and invariably these days most people will say to me, I really wish I was drinking less. I, you know, I'd love to cut down. What does that feel like? Why have you done it? At my age, I'm, I'm 47. Most of the people that are the same age as me are noticing that things are slowing down, that things are harder than they were. And if you add any kind of toxin on top of your life in that set of circumstance, you're going to find it even harder. And I think that's quite an attractive thought for most people is is getting a little bit more energy and bounce into your day and what can you do that's a simple choice that that would facilitate that and I guess that the rub of it is if it's not a simple choice if it is a bit harder than you anticipated to cut alcohol out then that in itself is probably something that will be a question point for the individual right it has it crept in a bit further than you would wish it to is it you know has it become part of your habitual routine that maybe you don't want it to be do you have any sort of advice for other leaders or CEOs who increasingly find themselves in situations where they feel like they have to engage in perhaps quite laddish drinking culture I know that there might be some industries some sectors that are sort of typical old boys clubs and they feel pressured to join in with that sort of quite stereotypical drinking culture do you have any advice for people who are looking to step back from that and looking to make changes without feeling judged or worried about the pushback from that look I think everything in life that's worth doing will feel uncomfortable all of the big decisions that I've made or changes that I've made in my life have been uncomfortable to start with. So expecting to feel a little bit uneasy, like the first time you ride a bike or whatever in a social set of circumstance when you're not drinking is inevitable. But actually, this is one that Luke, my buddy, 
was chatting to me about the other day. He listens to a podcast. I think it's Joe Rogan. And Joe Rogan has this thing that he says when he's making his choices in life, he likes to imagine that his life is a film that his children will get to watch one day. And each time he makes a decision, it's kind of, would I be happy with that version of me that my child witnessed? And I think that's not a bad way to look at the world. Like if you're if you're going out in a social situation and you're being pushed to do things that maybe you're not 100% comfortable with, that you know aren't going to make you feel good, either if you haven't got children, how would the future version of yourself feel about it? But if you have got kids, is that what you want for your kids? And I know for me, that was a really big factor, having children and going through what I went through as a child. I don't want my kids to grow up having that association that everything that's good has to come with a drink in your hand. Every celebration, every sadness, every experience does not have to be through the lens of alcohol. By all means, people drinking responsibility want to have it as part of their life, but I don't want my children to have that mental association. And I think when you are feeling peer pressure, the, the counterbalance to that is feeling proud in yourself and wanting to get the version of yourself that you feel best in as that version that you can look back on and reflect on. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I'd like to talk a little bit about Stella Insurance, which was initially launched in Australia, but has recently been launched in the UK. The cost of living crisis that we have here in the UK is also a very worrying factor. Are you doing anything within your business to support your customers and employees during this cost of living crisis? Yeah, well, as I said, I've got a number of businesses already in the UK and we are very, very cognizant of that challenge. We trialled the four-day working week last year for three months and decided to make it a permanent thing. What that's given, and you know, I had this debate with somebody the other day, in terms of salary levels, we pay the real living wage, but I'm very cognizant of the fact that that's still not, it's not enough, and we know that. And we're trying to move those salary brackets up as much as we can while still maintaining a successful business. And that's the balance that you already, you always have as, as a business owner is trying to get that balance right between business success and, and also being able to remunerate your people properly. But by launching the four day working week, what we're doing is giving people a bit more time. And some of our employees have launched their own sort of side hustles off the back of that, which has helped supplement their income. We're certainly finding that the turnover of staff has reduced massively sickness is reduced massively we allow everybody to work remotely so they haven't got those travel costs and if they want to if they're a two-car family and they want to go down to one car they can they can do that as well but from a consumer viewpoint I think the best thing that we can do is try and make the products as competitively priced as we can and that's you know that also results in more sales and more success of the business. As you've mentioned, Stella Insurance is specifically catered to women. It's female-centred. How does that make it different to other insurance companies? What do you do specifically that makes it cater for women? 
Yeah, so I mean, we we started on a simple basis. When we launched in Australia, we went out and spoke to our target demographic and asked them what they didn't like about insurance at the moment. And there was a long list. There was a much shorter list in terms of what they, they did like. And we changed some of the, the, the policy conditions like cover baby gear and rather than golf clubs, which is one of the standard things. But it was more to do with how you engaged from a loyalty viewpoint, how you how the onboarding came on. Women didn't want as many questions. They they wanted a simpler question set as possible. The time poor, they just want to get it done and get out. So we we changed that experience. But then we started to realise that they don't really want to communicate about insurance, which is understandable. I, if people ask me what I do for a living at a party and I say insurance, there's not a lot of follow-up <laughs> questions <laughs> on the back of it. And so we started to talk to them about things they were interested in, try and be a value, like basically trying to be a mate in the sense of, you know, if you were chatting with one of your friends, you'd want advice on lots of different things so we got a female race car driver to talk about the pitfalls when buying a vehicle we did an expert series on superannuation policies in in australia to kind of really help women be empowered with that what we've started to look to develop is insurance products that ensure things that are problems more predominantly for women that haven't maybe been considered before. So we've just designed the first ever domestic abuse insurance policy. And we want to embed that in the motor insurance policy so that if any of our policyholders are a victim of domestic abuse, they can get access to funds and and get out of the situation. But I think that the idea of redesigning products that have traditionally been one thing but could be another and looking at it from a lens of what's my target, what's important, or what are the challenges to my target demographic? That's the thing that excites me about the business. That's the thing that I'm I'm looking forward to for the future, because I think that's where you can really have a shift change in the way that products are perceived, but also this combination of being commercially valuable and useful to the consumer, but also maybe helping with a problem that sits much bigger outside of that. How have your own experiences with being a woman working within the insurance sector shaped how you lead your company, how you are as a CEO? You know, I don't know whether it's specific to the insurance industry because, you know, I've got a very subjective experience. I never I never had a proper job. I always say this, I'm completely unemployable on the basis that I've, I've worked for myself since I was 24. So I think my experiences are more to do with my experience of life and myself. Like, I'm stubborn. I was always stubborn as a kid. But I think most people don't like to be told what to do in any respect. I certainly didn't want to be told what to do, which is hence the setting up my own business. But I find from management of people, the best thing that you can do with people is find people that are excited about the same things that you're excited about. So with Stella, all of the team are passionate about empowering women and making a difference. And that's a great start because you you're all kind of you've all got the same kind of goal. But it's then about giving them the tools 
and let and stepping back and letting them run with things and not trying to over control them or micromanage them and i think in highly regulated industries you can fall foul of attracting personalities that see things in very black and white terms right or wrong there's a structure to this and if i follow that structure then everything will be okay and that in my experience is a terrible way to manage people because they become very demotivated uninspired what people generally want to do is is run with something themselves and make something their own and feel completely engaged with it so the best thing i've ever done from a work viewpoint is get out of my own way and get out of their way and step aside and let them do what they know how to do and probably do a lot better job than I would. Thanks for listening to Leadership Lessons. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We're available on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts.